going to go ahead and get things started. Seven here. Um, welcome. It's really heartening to see all of you here tonight for this particular issue. Um, the panel on homelessness in our area. Alumni experts respond. My name is Lisa Ryers. I'm Brown class of 1990, as well as one of the co-presidents of the Brown Club of San Francisco. Um, I want to thank our board club treasurer, John Gartland of Wells Fargo, for helping us secure this space tonight. Um, as well as Corey Abbey, you might have met downstairs, who uh, is a former board club president. So um, you might be interested to know that we were planning this event long before the president decided to uh, uh, share his opinions about what's going on in, uh, in terms of our city and the area, um, as well as people putting boulders on the street. Um, so we're very fortunate to have such a great panel of experts, and it shouldn't come as a surprise that um, this group of experts has more than 50 years of cumulative experience, and um, no surprise that they're Brown graduates. So I would like to introduce our moderator tonight. It is Genevieve Ferreria, class of 04, who serves as the Federal Subsidy Compliance Analyst at the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. There, she enforces federal regulatory compliance over a $44.5 million housing and supportive services program for chronically homeless individuals and families throughout the county. She's previously worked at Google, the United States Senate, the nonprofit Interest Law Firm Public Advocates, and the Office of Rhode Island Governor Donald Carcieri, among others. She also chairs the Board of Directors for San Francisco Animal Care and Control, San Francisco's Municipal Animal Shelter. At Brown, Genevieve graduated with honors in public policy with a double concentration in international relations and sang with a super embarrassing a cappella group named Harmonic Motion. <laughs> she also has a JD for, from Georgetown University. Please welcome Genevieve. Thanks. So I just want to say this was a sold out event and um, there were supposed to be 70 people here and so I'd like to congratulate you all for being the ones who followed through. <laughs> Welcome. Um, I, we've decided not to use microphones. Um, I just feel like we've got a good group here. If you can't hear, just raise your hand. Um, and I just wanted to start off, first of all, I know there are some people who are currently working or have worked in, in this field before. If you are in that group, can you raise your hand so we could just get a sense? Good. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Great. I did some volunteering. Oh, fantastic. That counts. That absolutely <laughs> counts. And then how many of you are in um, the private sector? Great. Nonprofits? Government? Oh, government. <laughs> oh, good, good. There you go. Anything else that I missed? Okay, great. So I think that all of us um, were fortunate in the Bay Area that we now um, get so much information about what's going on in our region. And certainly homelessness is one of those crises you just can't look away from. Um, California has the highest percentage of people experiencing homelessness in the entire country despite only having 12% of our population. And unfortunately, it's just getting worse. And in the Bay Area alone, so the Bay Area, I'll remind you, is one of the most prosperous regions in the world, 
We are home to Silicon Valley. Our, our state is one of the most progressive in the union, perhaps the most progressive in the union. And unfortunately, the Bay Area is ground zero for what's happening in our homelessness crisis. Um, these numbers are getting worse. Uh, we, uh, so every two years, uh, communities, counties do an annual census of the number of people experiencing homelessness. And in San Francisco, you probably heard, we uh, saw a 17% increase in the number of people experiencing homelessness since 2017. In Santa Clara, um, they saw a 31% increase. San Mateo, 21%. Contra Costa, 43%. And Alameda County went up 43%. These are unheard of numbers. We're talking about 8,000 people in San Francisco who are experiencing homelessness and 4,071 people in the city of Oakland who are homeless today. And we know a lot of the reasons why people are experiencing homelessness. Again, we're fortunate to be in a, in a region where people are curious about this information. So we know that it's the cost of construction. Um, zoning regulations are a real problem. Access to health care, <coughs> to education, to jobs with living wages. Um, our rents are outrageous. The cost of living are just keep going up. Um, and frankly, I would cite fear and a lack of understanding as reasons why people are falling out of housing stability and finding themselves on the street or in shelters. Um, and, and you see it everywhere. I, I'm sure you have colleagues or friends who visited from out of town and comment on what they see in the sidewalks and under our freeways. Um, and it's, it's frightening and upsetting. Um, so tonight, uh, we wanted to have another discussion about this, introduce you to some Bay Area alums who are working on this issue. And we're gonna try and keep it a little bit different. I think, again, we know a lot of these causes, uh, but you may not know what is actually being done on the inside to build systems to respond to homelessness, to respond to the public's awareness of what's going on, and to try and actually address this growing crisis. So I'd like to introduce you to our panelists. Um, you have their full bios on um, in your handouts, and I encourage you to read them because they're just these are just fantastic people, as you would expect. Um, but to my left, first of all, we have Lindsay Haddix, class of 02. Uh, Lindsay is the principal real estate development analyst at the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, where she manages the city's planned expansion of transitional shelters, the renovation of city-owned sheltered. She does asset portfolio management of residential buildings that are master leased by the city and a bunch of other things. Um, before joining HSH, as we refer to the department, Lindsay worked for the San Mateo County Department of Housing, the San Francisco-based affordable housing developer Bridge, the City of New York's Department of Housing, Preservation and Development, and the New York City Housing Authority. Lindsay has a master's in regional planning from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and she studied environmental studies at Brown. She is also co-president of her class. Welcome, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, next, <laughs> next to Lindsay, we have Michael Santos, class of 07. He currently is a registered legal services attorney with Bay Area Legal Aid. Um, there he's specifically assigned to the organization San Francisco Housing Unit, 
where he protects families from illegal evictions, substandard housing conditions, and wrongful denials and terminations of housing subsidies. Michael also, a previ a previously at Bay Area Legal Aid, worked for the Youth Justice Unit, where he provided wraparound legal services to youth experiencing homelessness in San Francisco and Contra Costa counties. Uh, Michael formerly was an attorney at the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty in Washington, D.C., where he advocated for homeless children and youth through public education, impact litigation, and policy advocacy. He has his JD from the University of Southern California, and he graduated from Brown with a double concentration in biomedical engineering and ethnic studies. Welcome, Michael. Lara Tannenbaum, class of 92, manages the Community Housing Services Division of the City of Oakland's Human Services Department. In this role, she oversees a budget of approximately $28 million and is responsible for the direction, management, and implementation of a wide variety of interventions to address and end homelessness in Oakland. Lara previously served as the Director of Client Services at Berkeley Food and Housing Project which is a homelessness nonprofit in Berkeley. Um, before that, she spent 12 years at Larkin Youth, Street, uh, Youth Services, um, overseeing residential programs and programs for young adults with HIV, substance use, and mental health issues. Uh, Lara got her, uh, her uh, degree from Brown in anthropology, I believe it was. Um, and she's previously served as a case manager and homeless outreach worker in the South Bronx. She has a master's degree in social work from UC Berkeley. Welcome, Lara. And last but not least, our youngin, Cody Zeger, <laughs> class of what, what, 2014. I don't even know how to say that. What for? Uh, Cody is a master's degree candidate at the UC Berkeley Goldman School of Public Policy, where he's studying housing and homelessness. After graduating from Brown, Cody moved back to his native Bay Area to work for the City of San Francisco City Hall Fellows Program. Um, through that, he was placed at the San Francisco Public Library, which is the experience that sparked his interest in homelessness, housing, and harm reduction, um, which he further pursued through work with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and Tipping Point Community. At Tipping Point in particular, Cody helped manage the Moving On Initiative, a partnership between the city agencies and nonprofits that provides market rate housing location services for people graduating from permanent supportive housing programs in San Francisco. Uh, at Brown, Cody studied environmental studies with a focus on health and policy. Welcome, Cody. All right, so we've got a, a special group here. Um, they have inside track on, on what to do about homelessness. So I just wanted to start with kind of a systems design set of questions. What, what, what do you do about this? How, maybe, Laura, we could ask you, what, where do you start when you're thinking about building a system to respond to homelessness? Where do you start? Um, it's a big question. I guess uh, I, I would say a couple places. The first place to start is to really understand who is homeless in your community. So who's homeless, what are their needs? Are they singles, families, um, veterans, older people, younger people? Then you'd want to look at what resources you have available. So I think. Um, something that a lot of communities are working on right now, something that HUD is really pushing and providing some assistance on is doing some system modeling. So really figuring out how much of what kind of resource do you need to address homelessness in your community? 
So it, it can be very easy to say, well, we have 3,000 people in Oakland who are unsheltered. We need 3,000 more shelter beds. But that's not true. If we had 3,000 more shelter beds, we would have those folks inside, and we'd have 3,000 more people on the street. So it's really figuring out how to keep things flowing through our system that is important when you think about system modeling. And then most importantly, you have to think about what's, what's our end goal to house people. So whenever we're talking about homelessness and systems and, and services, we have to be talking about housing at the other end of it, or, or, we're, or we're never going to you know, get ourselves out of this crisis. So among those resources that you were mentioning, I mean, we have really incredible nonprofits and public companies and other organizations who've pitched in the faith-based communities. Uh, so how, what, what roles do those organizations play? So if you plug that into, let's say, what a city of Oakland is planning for itself, how do you get those other organizations to pitch in? Maybe... Michael, what do you sure. think? Yeah, so just to piggyback from what Laura was saying, the way I see the systems design is through a continuum, right? You look at it from like who's coming in, who's experiencing homelessness, um, and then who's also like currently experiencing homelessness, and then who's leaving the homelessness system. And so I, when I first started working in this area, I did a lot of federal policy work um, in a nonprofit, so we do a lot of public education impact litigation, um, so the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty, for some of you who have been keeping up with the news, um, litigated the Boise case, the, um, well, it was Bell v. Boise before, and then it changed to Martin v. Boise, so that basically found um, if there are not enough shelter um, beds, shelter spaces in the city of Boise, then um, you cannot criminalize people experiencing homelessness on the streets. So. Um, um, so just going back to the idea of the continuum, um, I've been fortunate enough to actually have worked with young people um, and families experiencing homelessness at the end of the spectrum where they're already ex where they're on the streets or living doubled up. Um, and then currently I'm working at Bay, Bay Area Legal Aid's housing unit, um, the, particularly the Tenant Right to Counsel. So the Tenant Right to Counsel is actually the second program in the country after New York City to guarantee um, attorney representation in eviction cases. Um, and the big difference between New York City and San Francisco is that San Francisco, San Francisco does not have an income limit. So hopefully no one in this room will get evicted or will get summons and complaint. But if you do, you can actually, and if you live in San Francisco, you are entitled to an attorney. Um, and I can talk more about that later on. But that's sort of like what I do and what, how we contribute to this, to this um, system design is actually preventing people from entering um, the system of homelessness um, in the first place. So Barry Legal Aid, I feel like, is a good example of a robust nonprofit that has grown and evolved to address public need as it sees it. But Cody, so through Tipping Point, you actually did some actual proactive planning to coordinate the nonprofits and the city efforts. What was that like? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Tipping Point was an interesting place because I worked on a program called the Chronic Homelessness Initiative which sort of took a new view of what philanthropy could do with government. Um, and the idea was in order to combat homelessness, you needed to have nonprofits and government and philanthropy all working together. Whereas traditionally, government works with nonprofit and philanthropies work with nonprofit and we're all sort of telling the nonprofits what to do and it, it, it's not always coordinated. So our goal was to try and use our money and actually give it strategically to both nonprofits and the public sector um, to fund programs that maybe the public sector couldn't fund with their normal source of funding. So 
like, you know, the the tipping point pledge was $100 million to the city and county of San Francisco over five years, which was the biggest pledge the city had ever received for something like this. But it also, we also realized that HSH's budget annually is $300 million. So the $100 million over five years that we had wasn't really going to solve, the, it wasn't, it was a drop in the bucket in some sense. But what we were trying to do was use that money as flexibly as possible, saying, okay, we know the public sector has limits on how it can use its money, but here's our flexible funding. We can start up programs that you think are good, that we think are good, work together with nonprofits. And if they work, the city can take them over and fund them you know, indefinitely. And so that was the goal behind really leveraging philanthropic money as like almost risk capital um, to allow the government to take more risks and try new things. So organizations like philanthropic foundations act kind of like as a glue mm -hmm. to help steer a conversation. Um, so a group that we cannot steer is the public. And you may be aware, we have a very strong opinionated uh, set of constituents here in the Bay Area. Lindsay, what's that like? <laughs> what's it like to go to a public meeting and hear what people think about uh, your work? Um, yeah, so I... <laughs> Um, I have worked on five uh, temporary shelter projects now since I've been at HSH. Some have been uh, kind of more quiet in terms of public, uh, you know, feedback and participation than others. Probably the one that you're most familiar with is the one that we're building on the Embarcadero um, <clears throat> at, uh, at uh, Seawall Lot 330, which is a port, port property. Um, you know, HSH strives to do communication and engagement with the community early and, and often, um, and we've done that with all of our, um, all of our sites. Um, but it just really depends on the community and the neighbors, you know, how folks are going to react and what kind of input they're going to uh, provide on, you know, what we have uh, proposed. Um, I uh, don't know if anybody here went to or watched any of the Port Commission hearings, um, that happened while we were going through the approval process to sign the memorandum of understanding between the city and the port to um, build this. But there was a uh, robust turnout, which was exciting to see. I'm always a fan of civic engagement and civil discourse. Um, so it was, you know, in some ways heartening to see that people were motivated to come and, and speak their mind. Um, we also had, outside of the, the formal process of the commission hearings, we had additional community meetings that were um, very well attended. Uh, the mayor came to one of them. You may have read about that one in the newspaper. It got a lot of um, coverage. Um, there were a lot of folks that came to the second port commission hearing uh, in, in support of the project, which for me, both personally and professionally, was, um, was really gratifying and rewarding and kind of restored my faith in, um, in this city and in the community here because um, at the end of that commission hearing, more people had spoken in favor th um, of the project than opposed to it, which was very different. The first commission hearing, um, I don't know how many people that were there um, in total. It was probably a couple of hundred, I would say, and I only recall three people speaking out in favor, and at least two of them w were from the Coalition on Homelessness. Um, so, you know, it makes, it makes a difference. Public opinion really does make a difference. Um, people who are in positions like the Port Com Commission, the Board of Supervisors, the Mayor's Office, 
where they uh, you know need to listen to their constituents and and take in their concerns they they listen to their constituents and takes in their concerns so I you know I always encourage folks to um, if they can't attend in person to at least you know call their their representatives their board uh, uh, member and let them know that you you know would like to see one of these shelters more affordable housing in the city in your neighborhood in your district because that really gives um you know again the politicians and other folks that have to respond to constituents uh kind of more um uh you know if they have more support then they mm -hmm. will feel more comfortable advocating for projects like these lara there's i mean i, I imagine that the passions run as deeply over in the East Bay as they do here. What is it like for you to go to those kinds of public meetings? You know, we've been really fortunate in Oakland, um, not in the whole East Bay, but in Oakland in particular, we've cited a number of things in the last couple of years with very little community opposition. Hmm. So um, I'm really proud of Oakland for that. I don't have a lot. We would take your $100 million. <laughs> <laughs> opposition we have some here and there but one of the things that I think helps that and it, and we may get to this later on is one of our interventions that we've been um, citing a lot of over the last two years our community cabin interventions are very geographic in focus so the folks that are served the homeless folks that are served are from the neighborhood where the intervention is placed and they are only from the neighborhood where the intervention is placed and they resolve or end a large encampment um, so there's really an incentive, I think, for the neighbors who don't like the large encampments. The large encampments are not good for anybody, housed or unhoused. They're you know, challenging for everybody. So when we come in, we're saying, okay, you've got this huge encampment here. There's all kinds of issues with health and safety and hygiene, and we're gonna put this intervention here, but then this encampment's gonna go away. And I think that mm -hmm. has mitigated against a lot of, a lot of pushback. Um, yeah. So that raises a little bit of a point of view we haven't yet discussed, which is, the, the experience of the people who are actually living through homelessness. Um, how, how, how do you incorporate that point of view? Maybe Cody, you can tell us a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it's hard, um, but it's really important, I think. I think, I, so there's a, I'm gonna tell a brief story because I feel like it helps illustrate it in my mind, but I was working for the San Francisco Needle Exchange at a weekly site, and so I got to know a bunch of people who were using our services, um, many of whom were also experiencing homelessness. Um, and one of them came week after week, he didn't have housing, um, and basically for a year was telling me like, I need housing, I need housing, I need housing, and that was like the one thing we couldn't provide, so it was very difficult. Um, and then he got housing like a year into it, and it was amazing, and it was really exciting, and like we were all really excited. Fast forward a few weeks, he comes by the site, I ask him how he's doing, and I was like, how's being inside? And he was like, I'm not. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you mean you're not? Like, you have a house, like, people would kill for how like housing in San Francisco, especially people like permanent supportive housing that is given to people experiencing homelessness. And he was like, you know what? I have a partner, we've been together for years, he isn't housed, and he's only allowed to stay with me three nights a month. So I, rather than let him sleep outside by himself, I sleep with him outside. And that like hit me. I was like, oh, right. Of course, like you wouldn't want to leave your partner, just like any of us wouldn't want to leave our partners in a dangerous situation. Like, 
this program was potentially not designed with your input and your needs in mind. And so I think it's really crucial that like we are talking to people experiencing homelessness, whether it's in our work, on panels like this, you know, like, and, and there are certain ways to do that. Like a tipping point, we were working on it. We had definitely not perfected it, but our, all of our youth work, or <coughs> work around youth homelessness was guided by a group of like six to eight young people um, like partially motivated by the work that Bay Area Legal Aid was doing in their in their youth department, um, and really having them like come up with solutions, testing it with them, going back and forth on things. Does this make sense? Does this not make sense? Is this going to reach people we want to reach? Those are the types of things that get you to solutions that are effective and not get you to solutions that you know housing that makes people sleep outside. Yeah. So thank you. That was a really tough story but I think one of the things that we carry because we are humbled enough to have the opportunity to work with people experiencing homelessness is we see complications and things that are not always reported so maybe we can stick with this topic for a little bit um, we know that there are certain communities who experience homelessness more than others maybe we can focus and talk a little bit about some of those populations um, we started on youth a little bit, and Lara used to work with Larkin Street Youth Services. Um, there's been a, a, a focus lately on addressing youth homelessness. Can you tell us a little bit about what that work is like? Uh, sure. Let's see. Sorry, it's been a minute since I worked with homeless youth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, well, I'll just say personally what drew me to that work was having worked with adults in New York and then coming to the Bay Area and um, working with Larkin Street as, a, as an intern in graduate school and realizing that it really was an opportunity to intervene in somebody's life before, before patterns got too set, before people really became um, sort of long-time folks on the street. So it was really, uh, I think, really important and rewarding work to, to work with that age group. Um, one of the things that I think people don't always know about working with homeless youth is that there really is a need to have services that are dedicated to that population specifically. So people tend to think about, well, you're over 18, you're an adult. But if you think about, like, no one is no one is an adult when they're over 18. Uh, you know, we all went to college. Still working. During those, right, <laughs> me too. Um, so, so during those years that, that many of us go to college is the time that many young people are on the street. And if you think about when you're in college, it's it's catered towards your developmental stage and your, your age. So it's really important to have shelters that are specifically for transitional age youth and mental health programs that are specifically for that age and even permanent housing programs, even though people get older as they're in them, because otherwise people don't feel comfortable and they don't use services. So that, that's a really important thing, to, I think, to know that, that people often sort of question, why do we have these, um, these specific services? Yeah. And Michael, you've also worked with this population. What, what is causing um, people under 18 to fall into homelessness? So there's a lot of reasons. Um, um, so the work I did when I was at Bay Legal Youth Justice Unit um, in Oakland uh, is providing wraparound services, wraparound civil legal services to young people um, either experiencing homelessness or at risk of experiencing homelessness. And so we, um, I was working with young people from the ages between 12 to 24. Um, for the younger people, um, what I've found is you, there's usually a conflict with family, and so they run away. Mm -hmm. um, there's domestic violence at home, and so they run away. They're running away so actually they can stay safe. 
Um, and I think one of the most interesting things I've learned on the job is that a lot of the youth homelessness is really invisible. Um, you don't see a lot of them on the streets uh, because youth and young people are really resilient. I mean, I've experienced homelessness when I was growing up, um, when I was actually at Brown. Um, and um, I didn't really bat an eye, I didn't think about it. Um, and I think for a lot of young people, it's the same thing. They just want to move on and really wanted to you know, get back on their life once they um, experience homelessness. And so we work, uh, when I was at Bay Legal Youth Justice Unit, I worked with mostly young adults who have been in contact with the child welfare and the juvenile justice systems. Um, and those are big pipelines to, to homelessness, right? And so the idea is that we wanted to provide them with different support and services. So once they have, you know, once they come in with a legal issue, um, the chances of them having just one legal issue is very low because there's always, almost always the case that there's multiple legal issues involved. And so the idea is that we wanna make it easier for young people to actually access legal services by providing them all these other um, supports that are available to them. So we provide you know, access to public benefits, um, entering foster care. So in California, we have extended foster care. And so if you're actually over 18, if you have a placement order, if you're already in foster care before you turn 18, if there's an order, you can actually re-enter at any point until you're 21, which is a big help, a big boost, because they're able to access those critical supports and services as they're developing. Mm -hmm. um, and I just have to say, like, when I work with young people, it's really humbling and gratifying, but also very challenging because they have a very development, uh, d a different developmental um, ability, right? They're not really adults yet, but they're also not young people. Like, they're not kids. Um, and so they're in that limbo. Um, and when I did policy work, even before I was at the Early Legal Aid, when I was at the National Law Center on Homelessness Poverty, um, I, I think there are policy gaps. Uh, for a lot of young people, especially those who are college-aged. Um, I worked on this one federal law called McKinney-Vento. How many of you have heard of that? Okay, so McKinney-Vento is, McKinney-Vento Homeless Assistance Act is actually the law um, that is really, um, pertains to addressing homelessness. And so there's different provisions in that. There's one that deals specifically with the education of homeless children and youth. And in a nutshell, that law allows young people and <laughs> and um, kids, really, who are attending public school to attend the same school um, um, after they experience homelessness, if they happen to be displaced outside of the school district. Um, and just as a side note, when I was at the Law Center as well in D.C., um, I was there for three years, and I was actually, I was pretty active with the Brown Club of DC. I was the co-president last year. Um, <laughs> and had a lot of um, communications with the Careers for Common Good. Um, a lot of Brown uh, students were interested in doing internship in DC. And I've seen a lot of people who have put in their cover letters and their resume, or not resume, but cover letters that they've experienced homelessness. So in a good sense, you know, we're raising awareness, people are becoming more aware, um, and it's becoming less stigmatized, uh, but also it's very common. And I think it's very common for young people. It's just we don't see it, and they don't, don't talk about it. Yeah, and I, I remember it, it's just astonishing to spend some time with youth who are experiencing homelessness and hear them talk about what their plans are for the future. It's, it's really something. Um, Lindsay, San Francisco is working with a population that has some overlap here, mm -hmm. um, which is 
the LGBTQ plus population often also experiencing or entering into housing instability because they are running away from discrimination. What, what are some of the things that San Francisco is doing? Yeah, so um, we're, uh, we're currently looking for a site for a navigation center that would be specifically for transition-aged youth, or TAY, or folks between the age of um, 18 and 24, because they do have um, specific uh, needs. Um, we have not yet uh, found uh, the right fit, but, we're, but that's a top priority for, um, for the mayor and for HSH, and so uh, we will continue uh, to look for that site until we find um, a suitable site, um, and ideally, it would also include a um, an access point where youth who or take who aren't staying at the navigation center could um, could come and have some respite, um, even if they're not sleeping there. Um, and just in case folks uh, don't know what a navigation center is, and don't be embarrassed if you don't, because frankly, I didn't know what one was before I started this job. It's a um, low barrier uh, shelter. And it's um, a specific model that is meant to have some tools of engagement um, and be a more welcoming environment. So folks can bring in their possessions, their pets, and their partners. We call it the three Ps. Um, the shelters are open 24-7, so folks can come and go at any hours of the day. There's no set meal times. All meals are on demand. Um, we provide case management on site as well as a shelter clinic and um, and uh, benefits staff also are there multiple times a week to connect folks to benefits that they would be eligible for. Um, so back to your question, so we're, we're looking for a, a, a site for a TAY Navigation um, Center and then we also have, um, we have uh, one shelter called Jazzy's Place which is specifically for the um, LGBTQ plus uh, population uh, that's run by Dolores Street Community Services um, and there is a lot of overlap between uh, TAY and the LGBTQ plus um, population. Some statistics that we have show that as many as much as 46% of transition-aged youth identify as LGBTQ+. Uh, plus. Um, the board passed an ordinance in 2016 that requires certain agencies like HSH that work with clients to report a report uh, um, out um, data and analysis on sexual orientation and gender identity for the clients that we serve and that report will be coming out very soon, so I'm sure you can set your calendar reminders and, and look for that report. Um, but it, but you know, we, we can't serve the population um, in need unless we have good data uh, on, you know, on, on our clients. So that is step one, to understand who we're serving so that we can serve them better. Um, uh, we, do, we are working also with the, um, the Office of Tra uh, Transgender Initiatives to locate either in an existing um, navigation center or in a future navigation center a, a dorm for uh, clients who identify as transgender. Um, so that's also in the works. Yeah, so Lindsay has this fascinating job that I never thought existed before, but it is literally finding the real estate to put these shelters into and figuring out where in the geography they should be and then just negotiating with property owners on where to build this mythical housing that mm -hmm. we all need, but are in dire shortage of what? How do you how do you do this? <laughs> Super easy. Everyone wants to live next to homeless shelter. And real estate is is really cheap in San Francisco. No, it's um it's it's hard. It's challenging. Luckily, I have really great colleagues um, at the real estate division as well as the 
Department of Public Works, and we have looked at over 100 sites um, since the mayor announced last fall this initiative to expand the shelter system by 1,000 beds by the end of 2020. On any given night, there are there's a wait list of 1,000 people um, that, are, that would like to come indoors, but our shelters are at capacity. Um, so we're um, working very hard um, to expand the shelter system um, as quickly as possible. Um, so, you know, we, we come across sites in all kinds of ways. Um, I have an RFI up on the website, so sometimes it's um, cold emails from folks who see that RFI and have a site they want us to look at. Um, we have, two, uh, you're familiar as I, uh, with the Embarcadero Navigation, Safe Navigation Center that I just mentioned, that's on port property, so we often work with other government agencies that have surplus land. We have two navigation centers on um, Caltrans land, so that's the state transportation um, department, so uh, there's one at Division Circle and one on the corner of Fifth and Bryant, because mm-hmm. um, they give us a good deal on the lease, because there is legislative, um, there was legislation <coughs> basically compelling Caltrans to use any surplus land for homelessness or affordable housing serving purposes first. So, but for that legislation, you know, those sites would not have been available to the city um, and certainly not at the dollar a month, the cool price of a dollar a month that we, that we get to pay. So, um, you know, so there's a lot of things in place. There's also an emergency ordinance that the board passed and then just re-upped um, earlier this year that lets us cut through a lot of the bureaucratic hurdles. We, of course, keep um, life and um, life safety and in, uh, in, uh, at our forefront, making sure that the shelters are are safe for everyone that that comes to visit and and sleeps there. But um, but we're able to kind of bypass some of the red tape, if you will, um, through the permitting process, through the contractor selection process, in order to expedite. Because we are in a crisis, and when you're in a crisis, sometimes you have to you know, speed things uh, along. But it's very challenging, you know, and then we go through a robust community uh, engagement process, um, and sometimes people aren't excited uh, that we're considering moving in next door, and other times people are very supportive, um, and we work with the community so that they feel, um, so they know what we plan to do, they know about our success rates at other um, at other shelters, and, and we commit to them to being the best, you know, neighbors possible yeah so and and Oakland is is experimenting with other ways to find temporary housing for people by working with encampments with safe parking projects with cabins Laura can you tell us a little bit about those types of initiatives sure Um, about two years ago we piloted something that we're calling our community cabin model which you all may have read about it gets a lot of press um, good and bad which is basically a navigation center model, so it's very similar to what you described as a navigation center, which I should just say, like, really, like, there's some core elements that you want in any kind of low-barrier shelter, and whether you call it a community cabin or a navigation center or a shelter, it doesn't really matter. It just means that it needs to be low-barrier, which means people don't have to meet a lot of requirements to come in, so it needs to be friendly and welcoming. You have to bring, people should be able to bring their, their stuff and their, their pets and their partners, live with who they want to, have some private space, and then have services and resources to help them exit. So those are kind of the, the ingredients of the cake and how you frost it or what container it takes, I think, is, is less important than having all of those ingredients. So um, in Oakland, our cake looks like um, communities of, of tough sheds. And that, that's what we started with. So we started in December of 2017. Our first site opened, and it was an experiment. Um, and we really just wanted a place, as I said before, there's a, a large encampment in the part of Oakland 
that had been there for many years and just wasn't, we weren't able to provide enough kind of health and hygiene to it. It was really impactful in the neighborhood. There was an open lot right there next to the encampment. So we piloted this model um, of housing 40 people, two, two per cabin. Um, and it was pretty successful. We learned a lot of things. If we changed the cabin design for the next ones, we, we made some tweaks to the rules, things like that. But basically, it was just a place for people to have a secure, it was fenced, it had security 24-7, had on-site services. People could come and go as they want to. Um, and still, in our model, people can come and go. That's often a misperception about them. Um, so the fence is really to provide security for the people who are there um, to keep other people out, not to keep the people who are there from, from leaving. Um, so it's not jail. Um, and it's been pretty successful. We have five sites open currently around the city. All of them have been opened in conjunction with a large encampment that has closed. So we create an invitation zone and we invite those folks in. And so far we have a, about a 65% um, success rate of exits either to permanent or transitional housing. So once people come in, they get connected with a larger homeless services system, they may get matched to other services or they may move directly to housing. Um, it kind of depends on their trajectory. So they're, um, I would say we, we talk about them a lot. Our mayor talks about them a lot. We get a lot of press a lot. The advocates hate them a lot. <laughs> they're, they're a thing. Um, they're not like the best thing ever, but they're a, good, they're a good thing for the people that use them and who want to use them, I would say. Um, so it's and Oakland has an infrastructure too, like initiatives to, mm -hmm. to work on ensuring the the hygiene and the safety of people living in this kind right, of absolutely. Yep. So we're not able to create these cabin communities for every single large encampment that we have, and we have a lot. And in Oakland, it looks like San Francisco used to look um, before before some policies changed here to keep. Well, before the policies changed here. <laughs> um, so in Oakland, we have a lot of really large encampments, and so what we've done is provide services on site at those encampments. So we have right now 22 different encampments that are, that are serviced with porta-potties, with hand-washing stations, with regular garbage pickup. They've got bins just like we have in our house. Um, so they get weekly garbage pickup. And that's, um, that's a big undertaking. You, you don't think of it as a big undertaking, but it's not just a porta-potty. It's also what we've learned is we have to have garbage service that goes with a porta-potty or else the garbage goes in the porta-potty. And with the garbage service, which is provided by our public works department, here's a little insight into city government. Public works won't service encampments unless they have a police escort. And so, it, so we need extra public works crews, then we need extra police department crews to go with the public works department to empty the garbage. So we get a lot of questions about why can't we do this at more sites, and um, we have the money to, to pay for the porta-potties. It's all the other stuff that goes with it that's, that's a lot more um, expensive. But it's been fairly successful. It's been challenging in some ways, but I also think it really obviously improves people's hygiene and just dignity to be on the street to have <coughs> these, these basic amenities. Absolutely. And, and, but the point is for a shelter experience or an encampment experience to be brief and infrequent and short, we really want to get them into housing. And what we like to talk about in our, our field is permanent housing. Cody, what, what is permanent housing? What are the like <coughs> components of when we use this significant term permanent housing? Yeah, um, permanent housing, also known as permanent supportive housing, also known as supportive housing, also known as PSH. There's a whole list of things you could say, but sort of like what you're saying, it's the components that make it up. It's, long, it's a long-term housing placement. So whether that is in a building that the city owns and operates, um, or in an independent unit where you have a subsidy paying your rent every month, 
um, plus any services you might need, right, to get you stable and um, ready to live more, more independently. Um, so I don't want to say facts on this because I feel like you all know better, but I think San Francisco currently operates like 7,500 units of supportive housing um, just to main, like just maintains that for people. So there are 7,500 people currently living inside because of what the city is doing. Um, and I feel like that's something that's not often seen in the conversations about homelessness is like it, HSH in my working with you all um, and your colleagues, it's like two thirds of your budget goes to just paying people's rent every month, yeah. right? And that's a huge deal and it's a big cost, but it's also 7,500 people that aren't on the street right now because of the city. Absolutely. Can I add to that a Absolutely, please. Um, I also just want to really emphasize that not everyone who is homeless needs permanent supportive housing. In fact, a very small number of people who are homeless really need permanent supportive housing. And I think the narrative about homelessness, not the narrative, but the reality has really changed over time you know, it used to be that we really thought about people who are homeless as being primarily folks who have very serious substance use and mental health issues. And that is, of course, certainly true for many people. But the majority of people who are becoming homeless now are poor. They're poor, and we have a crazy housing market. So permanent housing for those folks means housing they can afford. And some of them need the services and support, and some of them don't. They just need to be able to pay their rent. So I always like to make this point when I talk to groups because we talk a lot about affordable housing and oh, even my son who's eight will now drive by a building and be like, how many of those units are gonna be affordable? <laughs> he knows, right? he's always asking. But he also knows to say, oh, how many are gonna be affordable to people that are homeless? Because affordable housing is not affordable to people that are homeless. So I think it's really important when we think about permanent housing for people that are homeless. You've got your segment that need the permanent supportive housing. You've got your folks that need affordable housing and we have to ask, is that affordable to people at zero to 20% of the area median income? Because that is what people earn when they're homeless. 20% of the area median income is roughly what someone on SSI has, right? So, so I just say that to say, like, people often wonder, like, well, I see all this affordable housing going up, but there's this guy in my corner. The guy in your corner isn't going to go into that housing unless we really hold our governments accountable. So when we hear about affordable housing, to ask those questions about whether it's deeply affordable. So sorry to get off my No, it's such, a, it's it's really such a good point. So we, we have a variety of different solutions to try and address what's going on, and we try to really right-size. So fit, you know, use, fit what kind of solution we're offering to an individual or a household based on what they need instead of giving everyone the most expensive package. Now, the most expensive package is the permanent supportive housing, which is long-term housing plus supportive services. And Michael, you do a lot of the supportive services, specifically legal services, and it includes, though, services for people before they become homeless, and also eviction. Tell us a little bit about the supportive services before we jump back to the right sizing and the types of housing so, there are. So yeah, just talking about my work now at Bayer Legal Aid Housing Unit here in San Francisco, I do have a couple questions for the audience. Like, how many of you are actually renters? I wasn't much. Um, how many of you have kids? I have cats. <laughs> or pets. How many yeah. of you have pets? Okay. All right. Um, and how many of you have had your like leases with like really really tiny fine print that you've actually never bothered looking at? <laughs> so the, the people I serve like fit in all those buckets, right? Their families, their kids, their pets. Um, 
And actually, I think on your handout, there is a little cheat sheet um, walking you through the what we call unlawful detainer. That's, that's really eviction. That's the eviction process. There's the housing court, Department 501 here in San Francisco that handles all the eviction cases. As you can see, um, the timeline to actually get evicted is really, really fast. So to describe my work, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Um, because as soon as you get served by complaint and summons and complaint, you have five days to respond. You have five days. And the law was actually recently changed because before, those five days will include the weekends. And so it's even faster to get evicted. Uh, but now they change it to court days, so it's only, it, it, it excludes court holidays and weekends. Um, and so a lot of, you know, the, a lot of the clients we see at Bay Legal, um, their, their cases are about non-payment of rent. Um, but there's also occasionally, you know, there's like some obscure part of their lease that the landlord tries to enforce. And I think the problem um, with the eviction cases that I see is that a lot of the clients don't actually end up getting to file an answer within those five days, right? Let's face it, like if you actually get that summons and complaint, there's different timelines in, how, um, in terms of the response. You have to respond in five days if you get it, um, if you're personally served, if it's by mail, you have, a little, you know, you have some wiggle room. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of our clients actually miss that critical timeline to respond. And so um, the landlords are able just to go to court and ask for a default judgment. Um, and once you're on default, it's much it's even harder to actually overturn that. Um, but the work I do is um, lawyers play an important role because even if after you get a judgment, there's still room for negotiations. Um, and so we assist full scope. So as soon as they get a summons and complaint, we assist them with um, filing response. Um, can be challenging because we have clients who sometimes show up on the day of that their answers do. So I have to like um, draft something immediately. Um, um, we also have clients who are already knee-deep knee into the eviction process, and so they need assistance, um, you know, settling with, uh, coming up with a good settlement agreement with the landlord. Um, and again, this goes back to the issue of non-payment, is that we may be able to get them housing, or we may be able to get preserve their tenancy, um, but we also ha see a lot of clients breach their settlement agreements because they're unable to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of, that's what I do. Yeah, and th these are these are not your typical desk jobs at all. We had a call with Michael to prepare for tonight, and he literally was running after a client to go find. Oh her. yes, <laughs> so, uh, and, and there's different housing in in San Francisco. There's public housing, subsidized housing. Challenge, uh, part of the challenge for me is like when I meet a client, I, sometimes they don't actually know what the subsidy is. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like a mystery. I have to play a game and try to figure out like what kind of subsidy are you, you, know, are you receiving? Because that would have some rules and regulations attached to it and some protections that may offer that could be available to the person or to that family. So to go back and, and to be clear, there are um, a variety of different resources that we can use to help someone remain stably housed. So there's rental subsidies, there's housing vouchers, there's income-based rental payments, um, there's something like parent supportive housing where you can stay there as long as you want and we will throw in the case management services. And there's time-limited housing with limited 
supportive services. So we've got a variety of things, and again, going back to this point of trying to right-size the solutions that we're offering people to make sure that we're being efficient in our delivery. But this, this right-sizing process is a complicated one. Um, and, and cities are now, and, and counties are using something called coordinated entry um, to do this. What, what is coordinated entry? Who wants to take that on? Yes, go. <laughs> and Sharon can help me. Um, coordinated entry is, um, it is a new way of accessing homeless services. It's mandated by HUD. And it's, it's very much like, the, like an emergency room. It's very much of a triage system. So it's, instead of giving out homeless services based on first come, first serve, it's based on what is, who is the person with the highest need, and that person gets the resources first. So uh, a tangible example may be, um, it used to be if you were a family and you wanted a shelter bed, you would call around to a bunch of different shelters. Do you have space for me? Nope, sorry, call tomorrow. Nope, sorry, call tomorrow. And you would just keep calling around. And that person spent a lot of time calling and the system didn't really know who that person was. So they couldn't really say, well, we have this many families who need a shelter bed. We don't know, because we just told them we were full and we hung up the phone. So in coordinated entry, everyone comes through the same sort of front door of the system. Everybody gets assessed with the same tool throughout the county. Everyone gets a score, a vulnerability score. And then those family shelter beds go to the first family on the list that has the highest score. And not only does it match that highest need family to the resource first, but we can now say in our system, we now know how many families need that shelter bed. So we may not have it for them, but we can speak it. And I do speak it all the time, because that's the story we need to tell in order to get more resources. Mm -hmm. So I think that the coordinated entry both helps us prioritize who gets resources, and it helps us answer this question about right-sizing, because we get a sense of what resources we need. And so in your packets, Lindsay had us put in two graphics. Um, Maybe you can, do you have a packet and you can yeah. tell us what that means? Sure. It's the, um, yeah, it's that one yeah. and the one behind it. Yeah, so this is what, so this is from um, HSH's uh, strategic plan, which we released um, at our founding, which was only three years ago. Um, and this is uh, what the system used to look like, um, where, <laughs> kind of to Lara's point, people would just, Call around, and maybe I had maybe I had a really com um, I was really good at advocating for myself, or maybe my case manager was um, especially adroit at finding me resources. So, but what we found was that people were kind of getting matched to services that didn't necessarily fit their needs. So maybe someone just needed some temporary rental assistance because they had uh, loss of income due to a job loss or health um, issue, but if a permanent supportive housing unit was available, they were maybe put into that um, permanent supportive housing unit, even though it had services that they didn't need necessarily. So in addition to being able to pri prioritize people based on their need, now the system looks more like this, so that everyone is coming through the same system, being assessed in the same way prioritized based on vulnerability, and not only that, match to the resource that meets their need. So the people aren't overhoused or over-resourced if um, you know, a, a, rent, a rental subsidy or something like that would get them back on their feet. Um, we also know, obviously, that we don't have enough housing for everybody that comes through coordinated entry, either permanent housing or temporary housing or rental assistance or any um, um, uh, of the housing resources. So. 
San Francisco engages in what we like to call problem solving, where we, um, we come up with uh, suggestions and ideas to help folks get stably housed that doesn't rely on coming into our shelter system or into one of our, um, our subsidized housing units. Uh, the program that's most well known is called Homeward Bound, um, and it's, yeah, it's not just a catchy Simon and Garfunkel song, um, but how very San Francisco that we have a program um, so uh, called Homeward Bound. But basically folks are reconnected with friends or family, um, you know, which could be another city in the state or it could be another state uh, altogether. All um, we make sure that the folks that they are, um, that, that those friends or families are willing and able to take them in and then we provide them um, transportation funds uh, via bus um, to get to get home and we have a lot of success with that program because sometimes people show up in San Francisco they don't realize how tough it is to make it here um, how expensive it is and if given an opportunity to go back um, and stay with friends and, and family and we follow up and make sure folks are safe and um, uh, you know, it's, it can be a really good solution for folks. So that's um, one of our better known and um, more successful programs that we run through our problem solving. And on the other end of the spectrum, I'm just going to talk about it real fast because we're running out of time, but Cody worked on something called the Moving On Initiative, which is, again, at the other end of this continuum of care, which is a program that helps people who are ready to graduate from that permanent supportive housing with all the supportive services and the rental subsidies into independent housing, living on their own, gradually, gradually, gradually. And so maybe you can ask him a question about that and he can tell you more <laughs> about it. But you do also have in your packet a graphic that shows, at least in San Francisco, all the housing placements that the Moving On Initiative has been able to do throughout the city. So I've got two more questions for you guys before we turn it over to you all. Um, what, what things did you not expect before you got into this work that you might want to caution others about before, if they are interested in entering into this work? And what is something that folks here could do tomorrow to start addressing homelessness? Do you want me to start? I'm happy Whoever to start. wants, yeah. go. Um, OK, both of those questions. Um, or one or both. No, no, no. I like both of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to combine them. Uh, what can you do tomorrow? You could pay someone's rent. It sounds sort of funny, but it is true. Like, there may be someone in your life who is homeless right now, and you could help them. I know that, that is a, that's a high bar, and so it's a, little bit, it's a little bit ridiculous to ask people, but that does sometimes happen with people. Um, if you're a landlord, any unit can be a unit that someone experiencing homelessness <coughs> lives in. The Moving On Initiative worked with private landlords, sort of like the city's doing, to literally identify units in buildings, in single-family homes, anywhere across the city. The map that you have on the back there shows you where across the city. Those are all individuals who chose to you know, take a rental subsidy for housing. So if you're a landlord, if you have a landlord, you could ask them to do it. Um, get educated, like Tipping Point has a, a campaign called the All In Campaign, the link is on that sheet, where you can have like literally like facts about homelessness, it says like what, if you want to do something now, what can you do, and a big thing is like what you were talking about, going to community meetings, like we've seen over and over again that things happen because of the people that show up to those meetings, um, and it's like a little bit crazy to think about, but if you are going there 
and they're planning a navigation center or a building of supportive housing in your neighborhood, like go say how excited you are that your neighbors are gonna be off the street. And I think that would that that really helps. The one thing not to do, I'll say really quickly, is like don't get discouraged. It's really hard living in a place with such stark wealth inequality and walking around every day and seeing people in such desperate need of assistance or of, of something. Um, and I think it's a natural instinct to sort of like shut down and be like, like I'm out, I don't know what to do, it's too complicated. Um, but if there's anything that I hope you've taken from this is like, we know the solution to homelessness, it is housing and sometimes services. Um, and like, it might be really complicated for all the people here to, that are actually enacting that to make that happen. But like the solution is not complicated, it is housing. So like in whatever way you can support that, do it. And just to piggyback from that, I think the question that I get from a lot of my friends who don't do this work is, what do I do when I see someone on the streets? That's the very common question I get from a lot of people. And my response is, you can give them money, but the very core of it, and this is very basic but fundamental, is that recognize them, give, you know, honor their dignity, because they're also human beings. And I feel like that could inform the way you approach homelessness either from providing direct legal services, designing systems, or, doing, or, or advocating for sensible policies that could actually end homelessness, mm -hmm. right? And even the case that um, my, the organization I was with, the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty, is really predicated on the human right to housing and, and, and recognizing that housing is a human right. Um, and the other thing I would point out is that homelessness itself is a, is a form of trauma, mm -hmm. right? And I think a lot of the clients I see on a day-to-day -day basis is, still on crisis and it can be really difficult to explain to them that housing is really important and critical and once you lose your housing everything else will start to unravel and once you lose your housing once you're evicted that will go on your record that would go in public records right like you can look it up in court after 60 days or it could go on your credit report and if you're, it's on your credit report it'll stick there for seven years and that would even make it even harder for you to find housing and so the stakes are really high for them not to lose housing, but it can be really difficult because some, a lot of them are still, are dealing with different crises um, as they're trying to save their tenancy. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. And, and one thing to keep in mind is that um, when you see people on the streets, it's, that, it's really a symptom that that person has already exhausted all of the other resources available, right? Like they can no longer stay with friends or family and they just, they're out, they're out of resources and that's why they're on the streets. And again, that goes back to the response of dignifying them, right? And making sure that they're part of the conversation um, and recognizing that they're human beings. Can, can, I, can I piggyback off your piggyback really quickly? I'm sorry. But you, remi okay, you reminded me, like, the dehumanization, the, like, like seeing people not as people um, can really be remedied by talking to people. Like... How many of us have see, like see someone experiencing homelessness every day? Like probably the majority of you since you're here. But how many of us have actually had a conversation with that person? Like that can go a long way to reminding you like who these people are, what their favorite colors are. They have pets. They have funny stories. Like that will go a long way to like feeding you to like be able to continue doing this work. I think. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Laura Lindsay. Yeah, um, so in terms of what you can do, I know we've already said it a few times, but I'll say it again. Reach out to your local elected officials. Tell them that you want to see 
permanent supportive housing, affordable housing, homeless shelters, uh, services for homeless people um, in your city, in your district, in your neighborhood, on your block, right next door. Um, it really does go a long way. Um, I try to uh, remember to carry a couple bucks so that I can buy a street sheet um, whenever someone comes up to me. Um, so uh, that's another um, small gesture, but it's a it's a gateway to having a conversation, to saying hello, um, and, and the street sheet is an, is sometimes critical of HSH, but that's you know that's that's okay. Um, you know we've all got our our uh, role role to play, um, and I would say that something that I wasn't aware of. Yeah, I think that the, the dehumanization that's happening right now when we talk about people experiencing homelessness is really disgusting, and so I would also just um, encourage you when you hear someone using language that is dehumanizing or um, offensive to remind them that people experiencing homelessness are people. They come in all stripes just like anybody else, you know, some, and, um, and that we need to show more compassion um, to our, our most vulnerable residents. Laura, any last words? Um, I, th I think these guys did a, did a good job. I think all the, the points that Cody made about advocating for housing, whether you're a landlord or you know a landlord, I think it is really important. It's interesting for me. I've only been in city government for a couple of years, so I'm when I can take a step back from the madness, I'm like, oh, this is how the sausage is made. It's like interesting. So what I can tell you about how the sausage is made is you all are so influential. Like, who knew? And I called my elected officials before I worked. I mean, I still don't, but not because I work. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you that, that they really are listening, and so it's and they need your cover. Like they yeah. need your cover. Yeah. And. Um, so, and I, and I think that's true at the state level as well. So there are a number of things that are happening at the state level to try and push additional housing development, and mm -hmm. that is so important. And so, um, you know, I think there's a whole idea of like local control and like city governments don't want the state to tell them what to do, and there have been times in our history in our country where the state or the federal government has had to come in and say like, we're, we're gonna force this issue. And I think housing is one of those issues, and I think our politicians need us to give them cover to do that. We can't have communities that are refusing to build. We just can't. Because when communities refuse to build, you see what you see on the streets. So so give your elected officials cover and, and call them and tell them that you want them to support legislation in favor of, of all kinds of housing, in particular affordable housing. Can I get a round of applause for this? So my background's in affordable housing, so I'm, uh, you know, pretty plugged into that community. And I would say there's Housing California, um, which is a statewide um, organization, and then there's also NPH, which is the nonprofit Affordable Housing Association of Northern California, and they just had their conference. Was that last Friday? Oh my gosh, two Fridays ago. 
um, here in San Francisco, and there are bills. I'm not advocating for the bills because I work for the city and I can't do that, but there are bills on the governor's desk right now about rent protections and um, other housing bills, and if you go to NPH's uh, website, there's a vi there's just what you were describing. There's a place where you can click and send your email to the governor, please sign these bills, and it's not a short th thing that he is going to sign all those bills, and we have until October 13th, I think, mm -hmm. um, is when the clock runs out on that. So those are the two organizations that I follow closely um, around affordable housing, housing issues. There's also the National Alliance to End Homelessness, um, so that's a good one, and the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, and they both send out email alerts and things. On a, on a more federal level. Yes. Yeah, two quick questions. One, well, maybe not quick, but um, one is, uh, are there lessons from other cities who are doing this better? I, I've heard certain things, I don't know the details of Seattle, for example, or Los Angeles getting veterans housed. Um, and and what, what, what's, what helps them do it better, if, if so? And what's the resistance here uh, uh, to getting things done, mm -hmm. do you think? Um, um, well, it is a, it's a pretty tight community, I would say, the folks working in homelessness. And for example, I just went to Oakland maybe six weeks ago to look at the safe parking site that they, that's at, on San Leandro right by the Coliseum because we're looking to open our first um, vehicle triage center uh, up near the Balboa Park um, BART station. Um, hopefully that will, that we're going to start construction next week and that should open um, in November. So, you know, Oakland and San Francisco and other Bay Area um, jurisdictions are in very close um, communication. We take people on tours all the time of our navigation centers. San Francisco um, opened the first navigation center in the country. It's proven to be a very successful model, so we definitely impart that wisdom and experience um, to other uh, jurisdictions who hopefully even improve on that model you know, more and give us um, feedback in terms of like I would say if there was a, if there was a jurisdiction, a city or a county that had like figured it out, we would all be doing whatever that is. So you know, I think people do different things depending on what the needs of the residents are, um, and you know that they're trying to to serve, and and maybe some uh, you know some jurisdictions have like focused on veterans or families or different different populations, um, but we you know. It is a very collaborative, the, the great, in my opinion, I've worked for government for a long time, and for me, the best thing about working in government is like, you, there's no non-disclosure agreements, right? There's no, none of that. We're all, it's all, we're all working for the public good, literally, um, and so we all communicate regularly and, and um, you know, impart lessons learned and experiences so that we can do, do better. And I think there always is a sense that someone's doing it better somewhere else, and I, and I know we feel that in Oakland and Alameda County and our elected officials are always like, well, why can't you go look and blah, 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 and like, they come to us. Like, yeah. It's always better somewhere else. And I, so I think San Francisco is a huge model for a lot of the country around the navigation centers, and, um, and there's always going to be pressure to say, well, go figure out what someone else is doing. But to your point, if someone had, had, someone had solved this, we would all be solving it. And, and, oh, sorry, just so really quickly, I didn't like one of the things like you brought up LA, LA's housed tons of people. They still have a huge issue with homelessness, but they have done a lot of really good work. And part of that is like a long-term sustainable funding source that they have committed to this issue that like hasn't really wavered. Um, and that is a huge piece of it, right? Like you were saying you would love 100 million. Like it's a lot of it is resources. Like are we voting to allocate more resources to what most people think is the number one problem in our 
in our cities. In the back. Um, yeah, after projects, we went to UC Berkeley, got a master's in planning, although I didn't end up in planning. But um, the, the common theme among my planning cronies is that there's this great absence of holistic planning and public policy mm. in the Bay Area, but especially in San Francisco. So if, if you go back 10 years ago, you know, the mayor, the board of supervisors, we've got to create jobs because we're in a recession. We've got to create jobs. We've got to build office buildings. We have to get tax breaks to corporations. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and there was the, the conventional wisdom that job creation benefited the public good. And, you know, you all are fighting the good fight, but it's, it's the tsunami that was created by, by all these jobs that <laughs> benefited none of your constituents and nobody yeah. built housing when they, they made the right. Impacted. Right, yeah. I mean, transportation is another obvious <laughs> example. Um, and I know that's that's like heresy, but you know, when the Bay Area cities tried to bid on the second headquarters of Amazon, I was kind of like, where are the priorities? And so, you know, that's that's tough for for all of you to kind of get involved in. But I'm just curious: is there any questioning of that? What's the relation between job creation and, and what you're trying to fix? For sure. When I, so I worked for the San Mateo County Department of Housing um, before uh, joining my job at the San Francisco Department of Homelessness. And it's, you know, it's a very different conversation in San Mateo County, as you can imagine. I don't know if anybody here uh, lives or works in San Mateo County than it is in San Francisco or it is in Oakland. But the, the, the messaging that San Mateo County really focused on um, that we thought would be the winning message that people would be able to take home was the jobs, housing, and balance. And when I was there so was two years ago, you know, for every job that was, for every 26 jobs that had been created the previous year, only one housing unit had been created. So it wasn't just, it's not just 10 years ago, it's still happening, yeah. right, in San Mateo County. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, people cite zoning and Prop 13 and, you know, and it's all of those things. I, I am hopeful that with, um, there are regional um, authorities like um, MTCABAG, you know, that are looking at regional solutions. There's also going to be a ballot measure soon that would create a uh, Bay Area-wide um, funding source that would be like a bond source, right? So everyone should look for that and vote for it, please. Um, and some counties can decide to opt out. But basically, it's a way that all the counties can pool their resources together so that they go farther. And the idea is still that 90% like, that of what you contribute would have to be spent in your county. But it's a, it's a way to look at this more regionally. Um, I worked for New York City for seven years. And it's a very different issue there, because New York is just so big. And it's one big you know, um, governing uh, body and that has been a huge challenge here is everyone has these fiefdoms and there's not a lot as much cooperation and collaboration across jurisdictional lines as there needs to be because all these things pa pass jurisdictional boundaries right mm -hmm. question yeah I have been told that one of the and it sounds like it was reiterated that one of the root causes of homelessness in this area is just the cost of housing and the cost of building new housing. Um, I'm curious what laws, why that is, and what things could change that would reduce the cost of building housing. 
So you could um, upzone, right? Instead, there's, I think it, I don't remember what the percentage is, maybe it's 75% of San Francisco is zoned um, single family, and not everybody can afford a single family home, right? Um, I live in an apartment building that's a multifamily building. It's also not far from here, where like all the multifamily, um, uh, you know, construction is um, concentrated. There's, you know, places like uh, Minneapolis have recently gone away completely with single-family only zoning as a way to increase density and and affordability. Um, so definitely zoning is one big piece. Um, one thing I love about San Francisco is how how much of an invitation there is to the public to participate, um, you know, and give input. But at the same time, that can s slow things down, and time is money. And when you slow down a project, it ends up costing more money, and um, might not end up being as big or as affordable um, as a result of that community process. Um, so that's another factor. I don't know if other people have. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think again, to this issue of like taking away some local control, we, we, need to, we need to take away the ability of our public to block the development of housing. I mean, it, I never would have thought I would be like a pro-development person. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, like it's just, it, it is too slow. We have too much public process. There are too many ways that people can stop the development of housing. Yeah, well, what laws are those that, those that allow people to stop the development? California Environmental Quality Sequa. Act is a big one. Sequa. Yeah. Um, CEQA, um, that is a uh, meant to be a very robust originally a way for anyone to raise a complaint and say I'm concerned about this development because I'm worried that it will have some harmful environmental impacts on me. Um, but you don't have to, go ahead. So as an example, the Embarcadero, um, the Embarcadero Safe Navigation Center, um, there was a CEQA finding that was, you know, no impact, no environmental impact, and then the group that has organized an opposition of that development then appealed that set CEQA decision and there's a 30-day clock that you have to wait out before you can start building and there was a hearing and we had you know do this hearing in front of the board of supervisors the board held up the planning department's determination but that just you know that was 30 whatever days that we had to wait before we could start building and frankly a lot of staff time I know because I'm staff um, for like preparing for that hearing um, so the legislation did just the California state legislation just did pass that for low um, barrier threshold uh, shelters like navigation centers that CEQA is is basically waived and it's as of right. So going forward, that won't that won't be an issue. So I would also you know to Lars' point, like encourage your state legislators to look at more legislation like that that would allow development to happen more quickly. I mean, this gets back to what we were talking about before, right? Like, those people who are, like, the people who are going and saying, like, trying to delay these projects are our are, are neighbors, right? And so, and I've been to these meetings, and I do not envy anyone who has to stand up there, because it, it's a lot. But, like, if you, as one of the neighborhood members, are participating in those discussions, you could, you have influence over those people, right? And if you're for these developments of, of these buildings, then you can, like, do something to prevent the right. city having sue. to wait. Right. Right. Like you could, you could prevent people from suing or like talk to like I, there we. It takes all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Boy, let's go all the way in the back over there, please. What, what role do the SRO hotels play in the whole situation? 
I'm so glad you brought that up. So the whole other thing I do is my job beyond the um, temporary shelters, but hasn't been I haven't been giving as much attention as I should is um, is this so the city master leases um, SRO buildings. And there are about six or seven of those master lease buildings where the lease is held by the city. What are I'm sorry, um, single room occupancy. So like hotel buildings that no longer have tourist licenses to operate, or maybe some of the units have tourist licenses, but some of them don't. So it's single room occupancy means it's um, typically shared bath, shared kitchen. Sometimes some of the units will have a sink. Sometimes they have a toilet, but um, shared kitchen is the, is the common denominator. They tend to be smaller units, so they're more affordable, right? Um, and for the building owners that can't use them as hotels, tourist hotels anymore, you know, s signing a, a long-term lease with the city or with a service provider um, who is going to house that building uh, with with our clients is, you know, can be a good, uh, can be a win-win that way. So the city is looking to expand its master lease portfolio of SRO buildings, um, but you know, it's it's a resource issue uh, among other things. Now those are can be more quiet, right? Like we do have to go to the board to get permission into to enter into a long, into a lease if it's above a certain threshold in terms of dollar amount or um, or um, length. But those are usually more quiet than like a new construction of a navigation center on the Embarcadero, which attracts a lot of attention. Um, so it can be a, a great way, as, as you're pointing out, like what you don't see is the thousands of people that are being housed in, in, in the units that the city supports, either the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development or HSH, and this is another way to add uh, more units to that portfolio. And I'll just add, so a, a thing that about our ability to use SROs, which is really great that we have this resource, but this San Francisco also has a big lag in having uh, family housing because we have such a big stock of or, or access to the SROs and we don't often have multiple room units. And so that's a downside. Yes? Is uh, funding an issue in the Bay Area? You mentioned LA is somewhat solve that problem? And if it is, uh, what did they do that uh, I think accounted for that that didn't, didn't happen here? They passed a bond measure and then they passed a revenue measure. Yeah. The bond measure lets them build, the revenue measure funds services. I wouldn't say it's not an issue there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's, uh, I mean, it's great what they did, but their, their homeless population is so large the funding is still an issue. But I think, um, as you said, I think the direction that, that all jurisdictions need to move in is to have a dedicated revenue stream just for homelessness. Um, we're hoping there'll be something on the ballot in Alameda County uh, in November 2020. San Francisco has done some stuff as well, but that, that's, um, <laughs> that's really important. There is the money and the political will. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. So, so I think everybody maybe remembers Prop C, um, which passed, but not by enough votes. So I also think there's an assumption that HSH has that money, but we don't. It's tied up in litigation um, because there's rules about the percentage of the, it has to be a super majority that passes legislation. Like, I don't actually understand the arcane rules um, behind it, but it's not just a simple majority when it comes to that kind of taxing. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't have any of that money mm -hmm. yet. And maybe in a few years after the legislation works its way out, if the legislature, or I mean the litigation, and if it is, um, found in the city's favor, uh, then, then we'll get that money, but we don't have it. 
And yeah. a th another thing, so on the question of what can you do tomorrow? So um, many of the uh, entities behind the lawsuit challenging Prop C are corporate companies, tech companies, um, hiding behind the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to work for a company, please talk to your bosses about how much you really care about your neighbors here and where you live. Yes. So, so I'm looking at these numbers. Um, San Francisco, 30% of the homeless weren't San Francisco residents before they became uh, Oakland, 22%. So can we really solve it without a federal solution and, and without, without uh, a change in the, the tax laws that redistribute income? I mean, I mean, can it really, can we keep doing it on, on a local level? I mean, can we keep taxing the corporations enough? I mean, is there, an, I mean, yeah. on a per person basis, Cody you know, looks like I, he's I, yeah, ready I to like, <laughs> leap off his seat and answer as this of, question. As of, I've lived here in San Francisco for 45 years, and I feel San Franciscans, despite what the national press says and what you know, is that we do care, you know, and, and we do we do vote for things that that matter, and it's still not enough. I mean, it you know we. Yeah, Cody. I have so many answers to your question. Um, <laughs> the first is no. Like you, we need the federal government right. to fund homeless services. And if you look, I mean, this is very well documented. Like in the 1980s, the HUD budget was cut severely, and homelessness became an issue in a way that it never was before. But he was that. our greatest president. Right, right and I wasn't going to name yeah, um, but the, but that's but that's serious. And if we had an executive right now who was willing to re up that money, now it's harder to put money into something than it is to take something out. Then that would really help places. One thing I would I would reframe the way the question that you phrased and said seventy percent of people who are homeless in San Francisco are who are living in San Francisco when they became homeless. Mm -hmm. So while yeah. there is there are some people that are attracted to live here because of you know being kicked out of their homes from their families because San Francisco is a welcoming place, the vast majority of people like were living down the block. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is a local issue, but it, you're right, it can't be solved without a federal intervention. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point that you made, and I often stress that as well in Oakland, that the vast majority of people that are homeless in Oakland are from Oakland. Mm -hmm. They are the, our neighbors. They are living in an encampment down the street from the mm -hmm. house that they were evicted from when their grandmother died. Mm -hmm. Right? Like It is a super local issue and cannot be solved on a local level. I'm going to take one more question. So much pressure. <laughs> one here in black. Yes, please. Can you share, like, just educate us a little bit more on the mental health aspect of homelessness? Because I think for a lot of us that use BART every day and are in neighborhoods, some of the stuff we see is not representative of, like, the discussion we're having. Like, they're not people I can even have a, necessarily have a conversation with or feel safe or comfortable mm -hmm. having a conversation with. And I worry, like, what are we doing for those populations? Because they seem so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and they, I, I'm assuming, I'm wondering if that's the supported housing, but that's where, like, a lot of folks get their impressions. And I wonder if people that are opposing these navigation and transition centers, they have those people in their minds. And so if we can demystify that, I think that would be <laughs> I, I'm happy I to mean, keep talking I mean, forever. You go. 
No, I was just going to say it's a challenge that I see on a day-to-day basis when I work with my clients because, you know, in order to actually successfully go through an eviction process or an unlawful detainer, like there's that presumption that you are, you have the capacity. Um, and it's really challenging for me when I have clients who ha- are have ongoing crisis. And so um, we, our solution at Bay Legal is we actually partner with a social worker. Um, and so the social worker provides the other wraparound services that that person may need in terms of getting you know, the necessary mental health supports, um, making just making their appointments, being able to pay right on time. Um, so that's how we try to solve it and address that on, from the legal aid perspective. Mm-hmm. But it is challenging. And, and those folks aren't necessarily experiencing homelessness. They might be, right? But DPH has, has sorry, Department of Public Health. We love acronyms in government. <laughs> Department of Public Health in San Francisco has a whole separate program that I myself am just learning about where they have um, managed alcohol beds and they have other types of stabilization beds for people with severe mental health issues that, um, you know, they might have been housed and now they, but they, they're getting more um, kind of medical, tre- you know, treatment. So separate from the, the shelters and what HSH offers, DPH has, has its own system of care. And the, the idea of like coordinated entry and everybody coming into the same system is that those clients can be best served, not only like within HSH's system and the different options that we have, but also across the county um, and different systems that that client might intera- um, interact with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I walk to work. I live in Knob Hill and HSH is on mission between 10th and 9th and I walk to work every day down Market Street and there, I see something alarming every day, you know, or usually multiple alarming things every day. And I just think, you know, there but for the grace of God go I and try to give that person some compassion. I must say, in all my days walking down Market Street and walking to, to work, I've never felt unsafe. I've never had any, I mean, I don't have, I don't have children or pets, but, um, you know, I've never felt unsafe. I've never felt threatened, um, you know definitely stay aware of my my surroundings as anyone would living in a big city but um someone and you know i compassion is usually the, the the first emotion that i feel and i'm going to take the moderator's prerogative to add on because i think a lot about mental health they work in mm-hmm. our um housing projects our permanent supportive housing projects with the hardest to serve and um it is like a nightmare in there it's a horror movie and if you want to know what a lifetime of poverty, of discrimination, of, of abuse, of violence, of no one paying attention to you, no one recognizing your human dignity looks like on a human being, it's what you see in the street and it's what's in our housing programs. That is what that does to you. And so compassion, compassion, compassion. Our, our social workers are doing the best we can to try and get people connected to help, but there is such a deep level of trauma mm-hmm. that there's only so much you can do. I think that's what's happening. And I just I just get really sad when people complain about how they're worried because we've effectively done this to the people on the street. We as a society. So on that happy note, <laughs> I wanna thank you all for coming. 
I don't know if you guys are going to hang around. I'm going to hang around a little sure. bit um, if you have more questions because we've really only tapped this. Um, but thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to all of you for just showing up every day and doing what you do. Thank you.